Thank you, Martin. And at this point in the proceedings, the preacher would normally be saying to the congregation, please keep your Bibles open. However, I'd like to ask you to please close your Bibles. Micah is one of the so-called minor prophets, and they're a little bit awkward, can be a little bit awkward to find in the Bible. So I thought at a public service this morning, I would provide you with not one or even two, but three different methods for finding the book of Micah in your Bible. The first is the sing-along method. Um, I don't know if you know this, but it, it, it'll get you any book in the, in the entire Bible once you've learnt the song. It begins with Genesis, hang on, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges and Ruth, and it so goes on. Somebody knows it, I can see, from a few nods. Uh, and then it goes through the second verse, which picks up at Job, Job, Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, jo- Hosea Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, and if you're listening, Micah was in there, just uh, slotted in there in his due place. And then it continues into the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Corinthians, and so on and so forth. So you can learn the song. And um, seriously, I recommend it to you. I'm old-fashioned enough. Uh, I've been teaching for over 30 years. Um, adults, not children, in fact. But I'm old-fashioned enough to think that uh, from time to time, a bit of rote learning is no bad thing. That's method number one for finding any book in the Bible, the sing-along method. Second method, uh, just for finding the minor prophets, is the football team method. Okay, so we've got 12 minor prophets, so we've got a manager and 11 players. The manager, of course, is Hosea, H-O-S, head of side. <laughs> Joel plays in goal, of course. Amos and Obadiah, so it's Alpha and Omega, are the fullbacks. The three five-letter Prophets are the halfbacks, Jonah, Micah, there at centre half, and Nahum. And the five forwards play in an HZM formation Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So there you have it, the football team method. Nothing could be simpler. Thank you. It's, it's not, I didn't make it up, by the way, it's too clever for me. Um, or the third method is, please turn to page 930, (laughs) for finding Micah. Well, now we've got our Bibles safely open again at page 930 and the first chapter or two, first two chapters of the book of Micah, one of the minor prophets. Um, Let me give you a quotation which is not from the Old Testament at all. But it's about the Old Testament and its God. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, Racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. And that's a description of the God of the Old Testament from 
Richard Dawkins shortly after he swallowed a dictionary. (laughs) But is the God of the Old Testament really like that? And it may be that when Martin or somebody else has uh, read to us from the Old Testament and says at the end, this is the word of the Lord, has that response sometimes stuck in your throat? (laughs) Thanks be to God for some of the teaching of the Old Testament. What is the God of the Old Testament really like? Specifically, what kind of God is presented to us in the first two chapters of Micah? Three truths about God in particular I find in these two chapters. And these are not obscure or esoteric truths. They are essential and fundamental repeated time and time again, not just by Micah, but by all of God's prophets. Three truths about God from the first two chapters of Micah. The first thing that we learn about God is that he is a speaking God. God is a speaking God. Look with me again at verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. We have in this first verse a little bit of history, a little bit of geography, and a little bit of theology. Let's just have a quick look at the history and the geography. A bit of history. Uh, There's an adaptation. Uh, Alan has updated the slide that he showed in connection with Obadiah last Sunday morning. And uh, you will just see the prophets of Judah in their order and connection with other people and other events of that time. So if you can just see at the top left-hand corner the three kings of Judah mentioned, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. You can see at the bottom left that Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah, a much more famous prophet. You can see that towards the end of their lives, uh, the Assyrian leader Sennacherib besieged Jerusalem. Then you have some more kings, pretty nasty characters, uh, were Manasseh and Ammon and so on. And then finally, a century later, the people of God go into exile in Babylon. And uh, that's the time of Obadiah, for example, uh, about which uh, Alan preached last Sunday morning. So that's just a little bit of historical context, as suggested by that first verse of Micah. And now the geographical context is this, that we have a divided kingdom, a northern kingdom of Israel with its capital Samaria, and we have a southern kingdom of Judah with its capital Jerusalem. And Micah lived about 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem. He was a Judean, even though he prophesied both about Judah and about Israel. Thank you very much indeed. So that's just a little bit of history and of geography. But there's also in this first verse a bit of theology as well. That is to say, we hear about God. And the first thing we hear, in fact is the word of the Lord that came to Micah. 
And this idea of the prophecy of Micah being the word of the Lord stands over the entire book, all seven chapters, come to us as the word of the Lord, just as Martin invited us to respond to at the end of his reading. The word of the Lord. Friends, God is not silent. We have not been left in the dark. There are many things we do not and cannot know and understand, but things some things we may know and should know. We are not left wondering, guessing what God is like. God has spoken. The word of the Lord came to Micah. And now we come to the word of the Lord this morning. And so let's receive it and respond to it with gladness and obedience, even when and if it doesn't present us with truths that we would particularly want or desire to hear. So God is a speaking God. That's the first thing that we learn from these first two chapters of Micah. But now the second thing we learn about God, and this will be the main part of my address to you this morning, because it's the main part, it's the main theme of these first two chapters of Micah. The second thing we learn about God is that he is a warning God. He is a God who warns. Now the scene in chapter 1 and verse 2 and following is that of a cosmic law court. But who's in the dock? Last week with Obadiah, the focus was on the enemy without, Israel's neighbours, the Edomites, who had betrayed Israel. But today with Micah, the spotlight is on the enemy within. The problem is with the people of God themselves, and especially with the rich and powerful who are living in the capital cities of Samaria, up there in the north, and Jerusalem, down there in the south. Now, the Lord has a twofold complaint against these people. First of all, he complains of idolatry. In chapter 1 and verse 5, there's a chilling reference to Jerusalem as Judah's high place. And if you know your Old Testament at least a little bit, you'll know that idea of a high place is indeed a chilling reference to idolatry. Jerusalem, of course, was the holy city, the city of David, the centre of worship of the true and living God. And yet it had become a high place, that is, a pagan shrine associated with things like fertility rites and other practices. Then in verse 7, there's a reference to all the idols of Samaria and to the prostitutes who were involved in the worship of those idols. Now, of course, all that talk of idolatry in Samaria and Jerusalem may seem very remote to us. It's a long way away and a long time ago. But let's be perfectly clear this morning that the problem of idolatry is not limited to so-called primitive peoples bowing down before statues that they have made. The essence of idolatry, after all, is to serve and to worship anything or anyone other than or more than the one true and living God. So whenever we love created things, cars, clothes, houses, money, work, music, sport, friends, 
spouses, children, anything or anyone more than God, more than our creator, then we too have become idolaters. In, I think it's Colossians chapter 3, Paul names the simple and yet pervasive sin of greed as he identifies it as idolatry. So if the, fir- if the Lord's first complaint is against idolatry, then the Lord's second complaint has to do with injustice. In chapter 2 now, there's a withering description of the rich and the powerful. In verse 1 of chapter 2, they lie awake at night, plotting their schemes, and at first light, they rush to carry them out. They just can't wait to do evil. In verse 2, they covet other people's fields and houses and fraudulently seize them. And this in a nation where the land was a gift given on trust from God himself. In verse 8, they steal people's best clothes from their very backs, probably to repay debts, as if they were their enemies rather than their, rather than their neighbours. And then in verse 9, they drive women, presumably widows, from their homes, and that in a day without any welfare state to give support and kindly charities to help them out. We have here a picture of a scandalous exploitation of the poor and the weak by the rich and the powerful. Is this one relevant to us today? Well, it's probably more relevant than we care to imagine. Here in the UK, most of us are able to enjoy reasonably comfortable and civilised lives because many people on the other side of the world can't. A person in this this country can afford to buy, say, a cheap pair of Levi's because the girl making them in Cambodia is paid just £15 a month and has to share an 18 by 12 foot apartment with seven others. Exploitation in today's global world may be less obvious than in Micah's day, but does that make it any less real? Two sins, then, are highlighted by Micah, idolatry and injustice. The first, a failure in our relationship with God. The second, a failure in our relationship with our fellow human beings. But now, continuing with this major theme of the God who warns, what is the punishment that is being threatened here? Well, it is divine punishment, all right. If you look back to chapter 1 and verses 3 and following, look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads the high places of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. Yes, it's very definitely the Lord threatening judgment. And yet history and the Old Testament record that the instrument of punishment was a purely human one. Israel and Judah were attacked by the Assyrian armies led by Sennacherib, who brought them to their knees. In a very important way then, Judah and Israel have brought punishment 
down upon themselves. It is self-inflicted. They had so weakened themselves economically, morally, spiritually, that an invading army could easily bring them to their knees. It's very remarkable, I think, how in chapter 2, Micah shows that the punishment matches the crime. In chapter 2 and verse 3, those who have plotted and schemed against others now learn that the Lord is plotting against them. In chapter 2 and verse 4, those who have brought ruin to others will find themselves utterly ruined. Chapter 2 and verse 10, those who have stolen the lands and houses of others will find themselves homeless and landless. This idea of divine punishment fitting the human crime is highlighted by Paul in the early chapters of his letter, his great letter to the Romans. In his devastating analysis of sin and its consequences, the apostle says, in effect, in Romans 1 and verse 21, they gave God up. And then three times he says, And then, eventually, God gave them up. What a terrible indictment. God gave them up. Not easily, not quickly, not lightly. But eventually, God let them have their own way. In the final analysis, unrepentant sinners don't just get what they deserve. They get what they want. C.S. Lewis put it very famously and very notably like this. In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and, at all costs, to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every, 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 every miraculous help? But he has done that on Calvary. To forgive them, they will not be forgiven. To leave them alone, alas, says Lewis, I'm afraid that is what he does. So that's something about the punishment which is threatened in these chapters. But now again, still thinking about this God as a warning God... How does Micah speak of God's warning? Well, first of all, he speaks of it faithfully. In chapter 2, we read of those prophets, false prophets they are, who only want to preach a positive, encouraging, uplifting message. But they are false prophets indeed. Verse 6 of chapter 2 says... Uh, puts words into the mouths of these false prophets. Do not prophesy, their prophets say. Do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. God's a good God. He's nice. He's kind. He's generous. Just be positive. Think positive thoughts. Let's be uplifting. Now, friends, there's plenty of scope, plenty of scope in the Christian message for encouragement and for reassurance. But please do not always be expecting your preachers to be serving up amusing, entertaining, and always and constantly uplifting messages. 
let us all welcome faithful preaching, even if it isn't always exactly what we might prefer to hear. Let us value faithfulness to the whole counsel of God. So Micah would preach God's message of warning faithfully, but he also preaches it sorrowfully. Chapter 1 and verse 8. Because of this, he says, I will weep and wail. I will go about barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. Mike, you see, is no sweaty, finger-pointing, tub-thumping, hellfire preacher. He takes no delight in his message of doom. Like Jesus after him, who wept over Jerusalem, Micah weeps as he warns of judgment. Perhaps some of us need to be more like the evangelist D.L. Moody, of whom it was said that he never spoke of hell and judgment without tears in his eyes. Mike has much then to say to us about a warning God. But that is not his last word. Move on to the third kind of thing, kind of characteristic about God from these chapters. A speaking God, a warning God, but now thirdly and lastly, a merciful God. In fact, you see, Micah's whole purpose in speaking that message of warning was to avert disaster, not to relish in it. And so alongside the message of warning is a message of hope. If you heed God's warning and repent, God will relent. There are several hints of this in the text, but it's in the last two verses of chapter 2 that it becomes very obvious. I will surely gather all of you, O Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. One who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them. The Lord at their head. What a message of hope if they heed the warning. So, how did things turn out? Well, a hundred years later, a prophet called Jeremiah was preaching his message of warning, and his listeners were about to kill him for being so downbeat, so negative in his preaching. Because he was prophesying bad things for the people of God. But then somebody remembered Micah. Remember, this is a hundred years in the future. Somebody remembers Micah. Jeremiah 26 records it. And this person ch- uh, chimes up and says, Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of, king, of Hezekiah, king of Judah... He told all the people of Judah, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Zion will be ploughed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, or or anyone else in Judah, put Micah to death? Did not Hezekiah fear the Lord and seek his favour? And did not the Lord relent 
so that he did not bring the disaster he pronounced against them. So you see how history turned out. Under good King Hezekiah, and at least to a certain extent, the nation did repent, and the Lord did relent of all that he had warned them about. I love the words of a great Puritan writer called Thomas Watson in this connection. He says this, God is more inclinable to mercy than to wrath. Mercy is his darling attribute, which he most delights in. And all the time, Watson is quoting from the Old Testament as he makes these statements. He says, the bee naturally gives honey. It stings only when it's provoked. So God does not punish till he can bear it no longer. Mercy is God's right hand that he is most used to. Inflicting punishment is called his strange or his alien work. He is not used to it. When the Lord would shave off the pride of a nation, he is said to hire a razor as if he had none of his own. Micah's message of hope stretches out, shines out like a beacon piercing the darkness. It reassures God's people that they will not be completely wiped out by the Assyrians. It promises a return to the land after exile. It speaks of one who will come out of the tiny clan of Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. But more of that next week and the week after. For the time being, how thankful we can be that the God we serve is not the fictitious bully imagined by Professor Dawkins, but he is a true and living God who speaks and warns and relents at the first opportunity a God more inclinable to mercy than to wrath. Let us pray. We thank you, O God, that you are a speaking God who has not left us in the dark. We thank you for the stern warnings of Scripture. May we take them to heart. And whatever work we need to do as individuals, as a church, and as a nation, to come back into your favour and to do your way, follow your way and do your will, then enable us by your spirit to do so. And thank you that you are a merciful God. Have mercy on us. Fill us with your spirit. And may we rejoice in Christ our Saviour. Amen.